Well, church, it's great to see you today. My name is Pastor Dave, and before we jump into the book of Romans, just a reminder to our church members that our next meeting is today uh, from 3 to 5 p.m. upstairs at the Dubai Evangelical Church Center there in Jibble Alley. We'll vote on four elder candidates, one elder reaffirmation. We'll be recommending new members. Half of our candidates are getting baptized today. So that's wonderful, really exciting. One thing we're going to try a little differently today. We may never do it again, or we may always do it. We'll see. But we'll, we as elders are going to share the testimonies of those who've been baptized. And then after the meeting closes, we'll hear the, the testimonies of, of those being baptized from their own mouths. And then we as members who are in the meeting uh, will verbally vote at that time. So that'll be a bit different than normal. I'll explain that again in the members meeting uh, this afternoon. If you have any questions or concerns, you should have a couple emails uh, with our candidates. Talk to us after the services today or before or during the member meeting. Again, member meeting 3 to 5 p.m. Baptisms, nine of them at 5.15 p.m. We'll start upstairs with testimonies and then outside downstairs with the actual uh, baptisms. So for the baptisms, non-members, you're welcome. Any family members, kids, we want everybody to be there to hear these testimonies and to witness this great ordinance of baptism. Well, if you have a Bible or a bulletin there with you, turn to Paul's letter to the Romans. This is Sermon 19, I think, in Romans, and looking forward to the next three weeks in Romans chapter 5. As you're turning there, remember last week's challenge. You could call it the Mildred Challenge. It's a question I asked Mildred to ask herself almost 10 years ago, whether she was a Christian or not, and to ask her to ask herself that question and to not go to sleep that night without answering it. It was a challenge to ask yourself, am I really a Christian? Am I saved by faith? Am I justified by faith? And I wonder how you answered that. I encouraged you by the next Sunday, which is today, to have an answer for that. Remember, there's no middle ground. There's no third way. You're either a follower of Christ, following him, or you're not. It's one or the other. Everyone in this room today is either saved or not saved. If you've reflected on this and you've, you've known and seen that you're not a believer, I pray that today's passage will encourage you to take that step of faith. If you are in the room and, and, and you are a believer you're assured of your faith, then these five verses are a glorious reality for each of us. Today we'll see that if you're justified by faith, if you've answered this question, am I really a Christian with a yes, then these five verses are true for you. Now remember the context of Romans. After the introduction from later on, Romans 1, 18 through Romans chapter 3, verse 20, We saw condemnation, that without Jesus, we're lost. We are destined to death and judgment. From verses 21 of chapter 3 onward through uh, chapter 4, we've seen justification, which means to be declared righteous in God's eyes. 
Now we'll start chapter 5, still in this section on justification. And today we'll see what justification has accomplished for us. We know it's accomplished salvation. Well, what else? Well, the first sentence is key for us. If you look there at verse 1, the first part of it, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, Sets up the context. It's often said that whenever you see a therefore in the Bible, you should ask yourself, what is the therefore there for? That's a good question. It's a linking word. It's pointing back to something, and it's now showing us something, showing us reality in light of something from the past. So what is the therefore pointing to? Again, read the whole phrase. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith. That's what chapter 4 was all about. First half was Abraham and David. They were saved by faith. God's people have always been saved by faith. Old Testament, New Testament from the first days until now. Not by works. Last week, we looked at Abraham and Sarah. And they were saved by faith. Righteousness was credited to them 500 years before the law was even given. Faith saves, yet even faith is a gift. God has to regenerate us, cause us to be born again, remove those scales from our eyes in order for us to put faith in Christ. So grace and faith, they go hand in hand with one another simultaneously. Well, now to the question at hand In chapter 5, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, what does that mean now? What realities do we now live in? We've been justified by faith. So what bearing does that have on our lives? Well, five verses, and we'll see two main things today. So if you're taking notes, easy two-part outline. Justification by faith has brought about, number one, peace forever. And number two, peace for today. Being right with God, being declared righteous with God has brought us peace forever and peace for today. Let's start first. Number one, peace forever. Desiring peace for us as image bearers of God is quite natural to us. It's second nature to us. We want peace from wars, peace here and peace in our home countries, peace at work, peace at home, peace in church, peace in our own hearts. We all want peace in our lives, but there's one kind of peace I left off that short list, the most important one, peace with God. Verse 1 says, if we're justified by faith, then we have this peace. Look at verse 1 again and the whole thing. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. How? Well, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Why is this a big deal? It's because we're saved, yes, from our sins, yes, for heaven. But most importantly, friends, we're saved from God himself. Apart from salvation, we're God's enemies. Instead of peace, the wrath of God lies upon us. Earlier in Romans 1, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
Ephesians 5, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Revelation 14 mentions the wrath of God being poured out. As we look around the world, things seem bleak. Even Samuel preached or shared in his pastoral prayer things in Libya and Morocco. Around the world, there are wars. There are rumors of wars. But there's actually a bigger war going on. And Paul's writing about the end of the worst war. There's something interesting about verse 1. Look at it again. It's not that we now have the peace of God, though that is true of believers. It's just not what Paul is saying here. It's not that we now have the peace of God. Paul is telling us, for those who've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That's a big distinction there. One little word, big change of meaning. Paul's not talking about a calm in your heart. He's not talking about an inward tranquility. Our application is not to go to the spa or to the beach later on this week. Now, this is a statement that the hostility between us and God is finished. Prior to justification by faith, we were God's enemies. And that's a scary thought, to be the very enemy of God. This is why I'm urging you. This is why I urged you so strongly last week, if you don't yet know Jesus, to place your faith in Jesus. Because when you're not in Christ, you're an enemy of Christ. Two ways to live, to follow Christ and be a friend of Christ and have, the, have peace with God or to be an enemy of Christ, to not have that peace and to have that hostility. See, before following Christ, our sin brought us under the wrath of God the Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. Every time we sin, what we're saying is God's not king, I'm king. Same with Adam and Eve. They had unlimited access to God. It wasn't just disobedience or eating some banned fruit. It was utter rebellion. They're claiming kingship. It was a failed coup attempt. When two parties claim, claim kingship, there's war. But justification brings peace with God. Pastor Chuck Swindoll says there's more relief in those three words, peace with God, than any other. More than being cured to a cancer patient, more than you're free to a death row inmate. Well, how has this peace come? Well, the end of verse 1, I just alluded to it. It comes through our Lord Jesus Christ, period. No other way given through Jesus Christ, the Lord. His life, he came to this earth. God came to us, Emmanuel. His life was a lifelong march to the cross, he faced temptation, but he lived perfectly. The people of God, they would offer up lambs after lambs after lambs, lambs without blemish as sacrifices. But now, here the true lamb of God had come, Jesus. And Jesus had no blemish. Jesus had no sin. Jesus was utterly perfect in every way. And he went on to the altar of sacrifice for us by dying on that tree. All of our sins, all the sins of his people, and the wrath of God was placed on Jesus, our substitute. But it gets better than that. It's not just the absence of wrath. It's not just the absence of penalty. It's not just the absence of eternal damnation. It gets even better than that. Justification brings us reconciliation. We have a forever friendship with God. Look at verse 2. Through him, Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith 
into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Again, access is gained. Access is obtained by faith. Again, what the whole of chapter 4 was about. The Old Testament is helpful for us because it's really one big illustration of our lack of access to God as sinners in need of salvation. So let's, let's do a little biblical theology this morning. Let's, let's trace this theme of lack of access through the Old Testament. The Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, they sin. They think they're king, not God. They want to do things their way, not God's way. And so what happens? Well, they're, they're, they're banished from the garden. And at the entrance to the garden, an angel is placed with a flaming sword to keep, keep Adam and Eve and all future humans out of the garden. You have Moses. Moses is commanded by God to hike up Mount Sinai and get the law. But he couldn't bring a friend. He couldn't bring an assistant. Couldn't bring a family member. If anyone else stepped foot up that mountain, they were to be executed a lack of access. The sacrifices in the book of Leviticus, they reminded people that they could only approach God through the death of their offering. And even then, it was an imperfect offering that brought no real presence. Then the people of God, they tabernacled or, or hiked. They, they roamed around without a home, Exodus. Then in particularly uh, in particular, the book of Numbers, we see what's called the wilderness wanderings. The people of God, they wandered around for decades, not knowing where they were going. They, were, they would set up temporary camps in circular or square format, and you were placed according to your tribe. In the center was the tabernacle or the presence of God, and the priests were there. The 12 tribes were placed around the tabernacle, three on each side, three, 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 all the same distance from the tabernacle, the same distance from the presence of God. But here's the thing. At the center of the tabernacle was the Holy of Holies, and it contained the Ark of the Covenant, this great rectangular square, rectangular box that held the Ten Commandments or uh, you could say also the manna from heaven, Aaron's budding rod. These three symbols of the faith, they were in the Ark of the Covenant. On top of the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat. And one day a year, just one, one person, the high priest, on that one day would go in and would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on top of the mercy seat, there on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And only then... Um, could the sacrifice be done after the priest had gone through an elaborate cleansing ritual? Only then could he actually go into the Holy of Holies. One tradition says the high priest actually uh, would have a rope tied around his leg in case something happened to him or he died. Remember, no one else had access. No one else could get in. Now, that way, they, if something happened, they could pull the high priest out. At the tabernacle, there was a curtain or a very strong veil that separated the temple from the holy place and from the holy of holies. It was an unbreakable veil. It was extremely thick, and that barrier separated the people of God from the presence of God. Nothing could rip through that veil until Calvary. It was there in the death of Jesus. The sun covered up 
the darkness came as night and there was an earthquake and the veil of the temple, it was ripped into two, just like we could rip any thin piece of paper today. That unbreakable veil was broken, torn in two. Now church, what this is saying is through Christ's death, we have obtained access to God. The first part of verse two is a wonderful truth. Those who had no access now have complete access. And access here has the idea of an unlimited audience with a king. Paul says this is a present reality for believers. We don't need to make an appointment to be in the presence of God. Now, I had the privilege of meeting His Highness Sheikh Saud bin Sakar al-Qasimi, the ruler of Ras al-Khaimah, years ago when he gave land for an evangelical church building there. I've met both the crown prince and the, the ruler, the Sheikh of Fujairah, in back-to-back weeks years ago. I shook His Highness Sheikh Mohammed's hand, offering him condolences at the death of his son. I've sat in the personal medjulis of His Highness Sheikh Hamdan, Sheikh Mohammed's older brother, before he passed away, thanking him for his kindness toward Christians. However, these meetings were not just drop-ins. We weren't in the neighborhood and we thought to ourselves, you know, we should just stop by the royal palace and say hi to the sheikhs. No, we had an appointed time just like you would with any earthly king. Paul's saying with God, we can go straight into the royal medullus any time of day, any time of night. And this access is not merely to an earthly king, but to the king of kings. This picture is of being ushered immediately into the king's court upon arrival. Verse 2 tells us, it's in this grace we stand. Now, to stand implies permanency. Previously exiles, one author has written, we've come now to take up permanent residence in the land of grace. Being justified by faith means there's no special pilgrimage to find God, no particular buildings where God's presence is contained today, no rituals to follow to get into his presence. It's also why we don't invite God to join us in our worship gathering. He's already here. He's already with us. The verbs here are in the present tense or the perfect tense. It's a continuous state of being in God's presence. We don't fall in and out of grace like a politician might with his or her constituents. Instead, we stand in the grace with a sense of permanency. Romans chapter 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. Nothing. This is a peace forever. So the end of verse 2. We can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The word rejoice is often translated boasting. Some translations, in fact, have that word boasting. We boast now, not in ourselves, but in the glory of God and what He's done. Glory comes from the Greek word doxa. That's where we get doxology from. As Christians, we glorify God by delighting in Him, by showing off to the world His greatness. Glory in the Old Testament, it speaks of a, of a weightiness, of, of, of a heaviness. There's a seriousness about God. Knowing Him is no light matter. There's a gravity to it, a reverence. The veil of separation has been torn 
by the shed blood of Jesus. Those lamb sacrifices each year never tore the veil, but pointed to the one who would. It's through Christ that God has welcomed us into his family. We can rejoice. Believer, we are standing in his grace. We are standing in this grace, and we can never be knocked out of this grace. Friends, you can't lose your salvation. You can't lose your standing with God. If you're saved, you're saved into a peace forever. Now, that doesn't mean you can become a Christian and then do whatever you want. Christianity is not about getting just fire insurance, keeping you out of hell while living some licentious, sinful life. More coming on this in Romans. But a Christian would never live a continual life of sin because, as we'll see in verse 5, we're fundamentally changed. A Christian is a new creature. Is one who's born again, born new. To be a Christian means you're a new creation. Your desire is to love God and to serve Him. Well, one might ask at this point, well, what about those once in the church who've walked away from the church? Maybe you know someone like that. Well, one of two things is likely true. One, they'll return to the Lord before they die. In a sense, they'll endure. One might wonder if at that time they're coming back to the Lord is truly a coming back or if only then have they become a Christian in that moment. But more important than when one is saved, more important than the moment of salvation is if they have a present posture of faith. Do they, do you have a posture of faith? If you have faith in Christ for the salvation of your sins then you are saved. Or two, they won't return to the Lord. Those that maybe were in the church, those that maybe professed faith, they, and they, they, they don't return to the Lord. And what we'd say about them is not that they've lost their salvation, but that they were never a follower of Christ in the first place. Even if they were a leader or a pastor in a church. A decade ago, the, the personal assistant to Mark Dever at Capitol Baptist Church, all of a sudden said he was no longer a Christian. It was shocking to us. But today, this seems like it's happening all the time. People deconstructing their faith. I don't even know what that means exactly, but it seems like an excuse for people to go ahead and believe whatever they want to believe and live however they want to live. They become the authority on what's true and what's right instead of God's word. It's not an enduring faith. If it's not an enduring faith, there is no faith in the first place. Fellow believer, take heart. If you have a present posture of faith, if you believe in the one true God, you can't lose your standing with God. And so Paul says here, rejoice with hope. The late R.C. Sproul once wrote that the only difference between hope and faith is that faith looks to what has already taken place and we put our trust in it. Hope is merely faith looking forward. I like that. Hope is faith looking forward. Yes, the cross saves us 
from our sins. But not only that, there's a future inheritance. The hope of his glory is coming. We've seen the first fruits of our salvation. But oh, friends, glory is so much better. Glory will be so much better than even the best things we enjoy on this earth today. No matter what your day is like today, Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Heaven is coming. Glory is coming. A glorious day is coming. And on that day, our peace forever will be forever perfect. But Paul's not only talking about peace forever, but also peace for today. That's our second point. Number two, peace for today. Look down at verse three. Not only that, so yes, we have this peace forever, but, and here's the key in the second point, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Oh, dear friends, it's true we have peace forever, but when we suffer, we're bound to wonder, what about the trials that we're facing today? How does peace for today and the pain of the day reconcile with one another? Well, the Romans in Paul's day, they were no strangers to suffering. They'd been expelled from Rome under Claudius the Empire, emperor in AD 49, only allowed to return a few years later. Notice what Paul says here, though, in this text. Another word, another key word, another key distinction. That's why we have to read the Bible closely. That's why we linger in the text. That's why we study the text in many of our community groups. That's why we encourage you to read ahead of time. That's why you come on Sunday morning to sit under the preaching of his word. Because look at this distinction even here, just one word here in our text. Notice what Paul says. We don't rejoice for our sufferings. We, we, we don't. We don't rejoice for our sufferings. What does the text say? But we rejoice in our sufferings. This is really, really important. Don't miss this. Rejoicing for our sufferings would be some kind of masochism, a strange and sick enjoyment of pain. We don't go around giving each other high fives for our disabilities or diseases. Now, this joy here that Paul is talking about is not joy in suffering itself. Disease and death are horrible. Disabilities are not to be praised. There are consequences to the fall. We we don't party at funerals. No, we may at times call them celebrations of life, but a human has died. A friend, a family member, death itself isn't good. Death itself isn't good. We shouldn't celebrate suffering. We don't rejoice for our pain. What does Paul tell us here? He says we rejoice in our pain. Don't miss that distinction. Suffering in our text has the idea of pressure. And while it could include pressure of deadlines, financial payments, workplace woes, depression, relational strain, ministry discouragements, grief, anxiety, school stress, But most specifically, this pressure here in our text refers to persecution. I think of one couple in our church who left Pakistan under the threats of severe 
persecution. They left everything behind like Abraham and Sarah came to a land that they didn't know of with people that they hadn't ever met with no job promised. Most of us haven't faced that type of persecution, but we're not exempt from it. You might be mocked in school for telling others about Jesus. But I'm thankful that when I was 16 and I didn't know Jesus, that another 16-year-old in my school, John Dyer, many of you met right before COVID when he came and preached and did a theology conference for us or a technology conference for us. I'm glad that, that John Dyer, the 16-year-old, that he had the courage to tell us about Jesus, even if he was mocked or made fun of for his faith. I'm glad he told me about Jesus so I could repent and believe and follow Christ. Tweens and teens, you might get made fun of for being godly or for doing the right thing, for being honest, for not cheating on that exam, being kind, telling others about Jesus. But you never know how God might use your witness at school or if you're homeschooled in the activities that you take part in, music, sports. Don't stop. Keep going. Keep being faithful. At work, being honest might cause you a promotion. Having integrity could cost you accolades. Sharing the gospel could even cost you your job. Maybe being part of Redeemer. Maybe that's caused your extended family to look down upon you because you left your family's historic church or denomination. And you have faced pressure or persecution from your parents or from others just because you want to walk with Jesus, just because you want to sit under God's word. But you've seen God move through your suffering, haven't you? This is why Paul is saying we don't moan and groan in our trials. Instead, Paul is saying something completely counter-cultural. He says rejoice, not for our sufferings, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Why do we rejoice? Well, the end of verse 3, we rejoice because. Now, here's the reason. Paul's saying we rejoice because suffering does something. Suffering's not wasted. Suffering's not unintentional. Suffering's not an accident. Look at what suffering does. Look at what Paul says. Suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Let's look at each of those. First, suffering produces endurance. Suffering's not accidental. There's an intentionality in it, a divine intentionality in it. And Paul would know. Right? He suffered incredibly, including intense persecution. Listen to only part of his CV of suffering from 2 Corinthians. I've been lashed, beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, struggled with sleeplessness, hunger, Danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. Friends, that's a lot of danger, isn't it? One affliction Paul describes as so utterly burdensome beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. There was a time when Paul and his friends thought they were going to die. But now on the other side of the trial, Paul understood what God was doing. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 9 says, Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. 
So they really, really, really did think they were going to die. They had received the sentence of death. This was the end. This was the end of his earthly life. But, and here's the reason, but it, so but, here's the reason, it, our suffering, was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on the God who raised the dead. But on the God who raises the dead. Paul's saying here, well, what's he saying? Well, he's saying rejoice in your sufferings. Why? Because it brings endurance, because it brings reliance, because it's doing something in our hearts. Endurance means single-mindedness. It helps us focus on what's most important. Suffering is to walk where Jesus walked. It's to pick up our cross and to follow him. The Christian life's not an easy life. There's hardship. No matter if you're rich or poor, you have what you think is a great job or not, old, young, sick, strong. It doesn't matter. Nothing on earth matters except Jesus can give you peace for today in order to endure trials, no matter what you're facing today. No matter what trial or suffering you're facing today, he can give you endurance. He can give you peace. Endurance is one of those life lessons that you can never learn in a classroom. I know there's many teachers in this room, many students in this room. Can you imagine subjects in your school? Science, math, English, history, endurance. What would the teacher even say in endurance class? See, you can't learn endurance in the classroom of our academies. You can only learn endurance in the classrooms of life. You can't teach it. And Paul says it comes through suffering. Suffering is a productive means of God growing in our hearts in Christian maturity. It's not wasted. But Redeemer Church, we must respond well to our trials to rejoice. Now, not in some crazy way, in horrific pain. We just go around smiling at everyone and telling everyone that we're doing okay when they ask us here on Sunday morning, how are you doing? I'm doing great. And you got this big smile on your face when things are not going great. It's not what the text is saying here. We don't clap at our suffering. We don't give our suffering a standing ovation. That's not what it means to rejoice. This is a deep-seated joy in our hearts. Why? Well, because we know our pain is not about our pain. We have this deep-seated joy in our hearts because we know our pain is not about our pain. God is using it to help us endure to the end. Friend, God will not waste your suffering. He will not waste it, and so you don't waste your suffering either. God is at work. One author has said, tribulation puts muscle on our souls. Friends, we can have peace for today. Knowing our suffering isn't without purpose. But not only that, endurance produces character. That's the second thing we see there. <clears throat> Verses 3 and 4. The word for character means testedness. It's the quality of a person who's been tested and passed. Some of you in secondary school have taken IB or AP tests. Perhaps you've past your goal. Endurance brings about the passing of a kind of maturity test. Character comes out of it. That fight to persevere 
through suffering, it grows our character. Church, we're usually not transformed by the mountaintop highs of our lives, but those lows of suffering as God carries us through the valley of the shadow of death. It's in those times of deep dependence upon him that our faith is is stretched, that our faith is strengthened, that our faith is matured. And then finally, we see that character produces hope. It's a little more difficult and challenging to explain or understand. Paul doesn't clearly answer how this happens. We might explain it this way. If character produced by perseverance includes a greater trust in God, this in turn strengthens our hope, faith looking forward, strengthens our hope of sharing the glory promised by God. It strengthens our hope of sharing the glory promised by God. And here in verse 5, it's a hope that does not put us to shame. Or you could say, a hope that does not disappoint. Why? And I love this verse, verse 5. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I'm just going to read that again. Look how beautiful it is. Why? Why do we have a hope that does not disappoint? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is incredible. This is mind-blowing. We could spend all month, all year on these precious words. Some might say suffering shows us that God is not loving. Paul says the opposite. That suffering is profitable, that it leads to endurance, that it leads to character, that it leads to hope, and hope will not be put to shame. Redeemer Church, hope will not disappoint. Why? Because God will never give us up. An incredible act has happened to us. God has poured his love into our hearts, and most beautifully, most wonderfully, the Holy Spirit has been given to us. Oh, this is a wonderful reality. The sign and seal of our faith, our great comforter. Now, sometimes I'm asked the Redeemer, and I, and I want to laugh at this question because I think it's so unbelievably crazy, but sometimes every once in a while, I'll be asked, does Redeemer believe in the Holy Spirit? After some follow-up questions, usually find out what they mean. Well, we don't prophesy in our services or speak in tongues publicly. We don't make declarations, have visions. We don't have healing sessions up here at the front. But do we believe in the Holy Spirit of God at Redeemer Church? Listen closely so you don't forget my answer. Or if anybody asks you this question, does Redeemer Church believe in the Holy Spirit? Here's my answer. Yes, 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 yes. A thousand times, yes. We believe in the Holy Spirit of God. We believe in the triune God of the universe, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Not only do we believe in the Holy Spirit, we believe verse 5. We believe what the Bible says. That if you're a follower of Christ, most miraculously, the Holy Spirit lives inside you. 
This is unbelievable. The Holy Spirit has been given to us as a gift. It's what Jesus meant when he was leaving his disciples and he told them, I must leave. Something better is going to happen to you because when I leave, the Holy Spirit will come and the Holy Spirit will reside in you. Do you see that here in the text? Again, no stipulations, just justification by faith. You don't earn the Holy Spirit. You don't win him in a lottery. It's not just for super Christians because there aren't any. It's not only for pastors, that's for sure. Anyone saved by faith has God's love poured into their hearts through the Holy Spirit, which has been given to us, to each of us, to each follower of Christ, to each who's been justified by faith and declared righteous. Anyone saved by faith has been given the Holy Spirit. Just a side note. Yes, God can work miracles. Yes, God can heal in an instant. Yes, 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 yes. God can do all that. We believe at Redeemer Church of Dubai that God can do miracles, that God still does miracles. You can quote me personally on that. It's just that now, in this time past the church age, past around the first century, the miracles are not God's normative way of moving in this world in the way that most people think of miracles. It's not that God can't heal instantly. It's not that God does not speak audibly or can't. It's not that God doesn't still perform miracles. God can do anything he wants to, and at times he's done those things. They sometimes happen, though rarely. But in the first century, it was normative. It gave credibility to the apostles, to their ministry. It showed that they had the authority of Jesus. The same is not in effect in the same way today. But let me also say this. Let me redefine what a miracle is. God has done at least several hundred miracles in this room. If you're here this morning and you're saved by faith, if you're here this morning and you're born again, if you're here this morning and you're a follower of Christ, you are a miracle. You are a miracle. If you're a follower of Christ, you're a miracle. How? Because God has brought you from spiritual death to life. It's like in the book of Ezekiel, we see these dry, dead bones, and flesh comes upon them, and those dry, dead bones come to life. A miracle has happened in your heart, and God has given you new life and given you the Holy Spirit to grow in holiness, to be convicted of your sin, to grow spiritually. We have hundreds of miracles in this room. Yes, we believe in miracles at Redeemer Church. We believe and we will see nine miracles tonight get baptized. Come, come and hear the testimonies of these nine testimonies of God saving dead people, of God raising the dead. It's a great use of your Saturday or, I guess, Sunday afternoon. There are miracles all the time in Redeemer Church. The Holy Spirit of God residing in a human is a miracle. Amen? It's a miracle. If you're a follower of Christ, you have the Holy Spirit of God residing in your heart. That is unbelievable. Dwell on that today. Meditate on that this week. Contemplate that reality tonight before you go to sleep. Having the Holy Spirit within us gives us peace for today. If you're saved, you have the Spirit. That happens the moment you are saved. You don't get saved and then wait for the Holy Spirit. There's no second blessing where after some time passes, you finally get the Spirit. No separation between the time of salvation and the time of the Spirit's coming when you place your faith in Jesus and are justified. Several things happen simultaneously, including receiving the Spirit. Now, the end of verse 5, written in the past tense here, 
Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That's not a second blessing upon salvation. The Holy Spirit pours love into our hearts, period, the end. You have the Spirit. You could call this the sealing, S-E-A-L-I-N-G, the sealing of the Spirit. It happens once, and that's it. You can't be a Christian without the Holy Spirit. Now, it's another sermon for another day. We could talk about being filled with the Holy Spirit and what it means to sin and to quench the Spirit's work in our lives. But Paul's point here is that all believers are given by the Holy Spirit some measure of assurance of God's love. Isn't that wonderful? Redeemer Church, Romans 5, verses 1 through 5, show us that we as Christians have peace forever and a peace for today. Let that encourage our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have peace with you. The war between us is over. For your children, the war is over. We've gone from being across enemy lines from you to being adopted as your children. You're our hope, our everlasting joy. We can rejoice in our sufferings knowing they bring endurance, character, and hope. Oh, Father, we praise you today. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.